accessing library computer data. Out there, there are no saints. Just people. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We're continuing our run through Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I almost said Next Generation for some reason. We're up to the episode called Accession. Not Ascension, as many people have written in the comments. It is Ascension. That's a very nitpicky thing for me to say, but it's a weird word. We talked about that last time. It is the 17th episode of the fourth season, aired on February 24th, 1996. It was written by Jane Espenson, directed by Les Landau. In this episode, a 300-year-old Bajoran ship comes through the wormhole, and its passenger claims that he is the emissary of the prophets. We're joined by Clay, as always. Clay, how are you? I'm good. Uh, This is very much a classic style Everything returns to the status quo at the end, but I really hope we get to see more of Kira's awful Beetlejuice mom sculptures going forward. Yeah, right. There's a there's a in a in a world with no currency, I'm sure someone would be willing to pay for those things that she had produced. Their art is in the eye of the beholder. There is no objective quality to sculptures. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're talking about accession, which is a return to the Bajoran faith and the Bajoran people. And uh, a return of Keiko O'Brien to the wormhole, or not the wormhole, to the uh, DS9. Anyway, we're going to take a break. We're going to play an audio clip. Me and Claire are going to come back, and we're going to break down a session. I wanted to talk to you before you left for Beijing. Of course. I was surprised by your speech. I had no idea you were going to advocate change on such a massive scale. It's what the prophets want for Beijing. It's why they sent me. Are you sure of that? Absolutely. The emissary knows that what he's proposing will be difficult for some people to accept. He doesn't expect things to change overnight. So, you're not going to ask First Minister Shikar to step down and go back to farming? No, of course not. But frankly, by the next election, I doubt very many people will be left on Bejor who would elect a farmer to political office. We hope that eventually the people will support enforcement of the Dejaras by legal sanction. So if someone defies their caste? Society will have appropriate remedies at its disposal, such as deportation. You realize that caste-based discrimination goes against the Federation Charter. If Bejo returns to the Dejara system, I have no doubt that its petition to join the Federation will be rejected. Kai Wen and I have already discussed it. We're willing to make that sacrifice in order to follow the will of the prophets. I had a feeling when would see it that way. All right, Clay. So I don't know. This is one of those episodes. I don't know if this episode is very good, but there's a lot going on that I think is either interesting if not good, or it's interesting if it is good. Um, it's one of those things. It's, it has a lot of concepts and stuff under the hood that I find fascinating, even if I'm not sure that in the end I'm, I'm thinking that that's an episode I walk away from going like, that was a good use of my time to watch that. Um, so this... This episode posits two very interesting things, <laughs> at least. It says to me on one level that the best people to lead a religious movement are the either agnostic or atheistic non-believers. They are the best leaders of a uh, religion. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that it posits is that Chief O'Brien is a closeted homosexual who hates his family on some level. Um, <laughs> well, I think it posits a third thing in that uh, apparently you can be seven months pregnant even though you've been off the station for a year. Yeah, well, she came back, I guess, is the... <laughs> oh, okay. 
Well, I guess <laughs> that's true. He does say that she the last time that she visited. And that, I will say, is more of an explanation than the one pointed out by Dave from Clone Wars, given uh, uh, um, Padme Amidala's pregnancy. Yes. And how that's not possible to have happened. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's a pregnancy is a wishy-washy thing that seems to be impacted more by the state of the actors and actresses on the series than the actual logic of what's going into it. But um, <laughs> just like in real life, I, I think that the I think the emissary aspect is the meteor one. So, do we want to just talk about O'Brien's subplot first? Um, sure. Would you, uh, if you want to start with what you thought about the episode, and then maybe we'll just segue into the the O'Brien storyline where uh, Keiko and Molly have returned to the station after a year away and Keiko is pregnant and chief O'Brien is reacting appropriately. Um, overall I thought it was fine. Um, the only thing that really saved it for me, you know, you know how much I don't like the Bajoran religion shit. Um, the only thing that saved it for me was the idea that this emissary guy was basically like a, a fundamentalist. Um, that I found really interesting, but I didn't really think they did anything with it. So I was a little bit bummed at that. Um, and the O'Brien stuff, eh, it was fine. I don't know. It, 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 yeah, this was just kind of like a, a very, really middling episode for me overall, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the O'Brien stuff is... I, I What's most interesting to me about it is the fact that throughout the series, they've never really... I don't believe that Chief O'Brien likes his family. Like I say that sort of joking, <laughs> but it, it's sort of true in, in the sense that I've mentioned before, um, he always has the attitude towards Keiko where his reaction to her is always as if she's like this hardline um, drill sergeant who doesn't let him do anything. And mm-hmm. he's always allowed to do whatever he does, but he's always kind of moping about uh, due to his family obligations. And it's more like he's just kind of a, a whiny little bitch sometimes. Like he doesn't tell her that he wants to do things. He just kind of mopes about it. And I, I find that odd and I find it like a strange character beat. Like it just continues the fact that I don't think they know how to write this family unit very effectively. And they come across so strained and not realistic that it's, I I draw my own conclusions about O'Brien's happiness, even though I think the script thinks that O'Brien is perfectly happy in his family. I think the series thinks he's perfectly happy. Everything that comes out of the actors implies otherwise to me. Yeah. He, um, the reaction to his family is, is, it's like um, it's like they're trying to write the character from like the honeymooners or something, where he always refers to his wife as the old ball and chain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that cynical, um, and they they basically they O'Brien is just a terrible communicator. Yes, uh, when, yeah. uh, because he like his wife seems totally cool, um, but he is always acting as though there is a certain thing that he has to do being the husband and father of this family and gets annoyed when he can't do other stuff. But as you see in this episode, Keiko is totally fine with being like, dude, just go fuck go do whatever you want. Just go do your thing. Uh, but yeah, for some reason, O'Brien's approach to it is very much like the fact that they're here means I can't do what I want to do, even though he very clearly could and, right. and eventually does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like they the beginning they they do this whole thing uh, 
where it's him and Bashir like cleaning up the apartment. I don't know what the fuck he's been doing. In there, yeah, but it's apparently Bashir's been uh, staying over there or something. That's my that's my implication about what's going on. Uh, but yeah, they're cleaning up. He's turned his his apartment into like a. I don't know what the hell they're doing. I guess they're designing. It looks like, the it looks like a storage unit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they're lamenting his last day as, as like basically a bachelor because his family's been gone for a year or whatever. And it's like, um, the 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 problem I think with this story, and you know, maybe this is just coming from someone who I would like to think appreciates my family. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's no turn at the end where he's like, you know what. You're right. I'm being really childish about this. My family's pretty great. Maybe I should just, you know, suck it up. And then, yeah. you know, Keiko's like, yeah, we are pretty great. Now go do whatever the fuck you want. Yeah. Um, it, the end is just him moping around until Keiko is, is it, it's Keiko a really plays weird. Matchmaker. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really weird ending if you think about it. Cause like he's on a, on one level, yeah, she's he's looking forward to spending time with Keiko, but Keiko's really busy. Yep. And they kind of play that as though Keiko's just sort of like ignoring him. But then eventually she's basically kind of doing the same thing he's doing cuz he without saying it, she's like I need to find a way to get him out of my hair. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it, it's it's a really it's a really kind of strange ending. I I find it strange just in the fact that <clears throat> You know, she sets them up. She plays matchmaker, and she's like, "Go hang out with Julian Bashir." He he runs off like a teenager to the door, right? And he looks back and he kind of mm-hmm. winks at her. They don't have that. That's the scene where you're saying what you're saying. Like, shouldn't that scene be written where O'Brien realizes how great Keiko is to him, and he like yes. kisses her and decides to hang out with her or something? But instead, they play it as well, she doesn't want him to hang out though. That's the whole thing. She right. wants him to get the fuck out of the, the apartment. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just very weird. I so what what's the what's the schism there? Like why why is this not being portrayed properly? Because they've shown that they can write father and son relationships, and so it's it's not like the daughter being you know O'Brien's child being a daughter is going to change anything really drastic. There, she's a little bit younger, so you can't write for her in the way that you can write for Jake. But I don't understand what the I think you might be onto something with them trying to write it as if they're the honeymooners and it's just not coming across that way. Yeah. It comes across as a really strained relationship that they don't really like each other. I think that the uh, O'Brien and Keiko don't have any chemistry with each other mm-hmm. either, which is a mm-hmm. problem. Um, and it just, all, all those scenes just seem very odd to me and the way that they're writing, the way that he approaches the Bashir thing. And um, they just, it seems like the writers really enjoy, you know, maybe from the writer's perspective, What's coming across is the fact that they enjoy writing Bashir and O'Brien as a couple more than they enjoy writing the O'Briens as a couple, and it seems to come across that way in the script. Yeah, yeah, and they like they don't. Yeah, they just they write both of them as though they don't really like each other that much. Like it's because like even when they get back, O'Brien is like you know trying to be affectionate with Keiko, and Keiko's like meh, no. Yeah, <laughs> or you know, it's like even it's even in that point, it's like that. It's not just a one sided thing where it's not like Keiko really wants to spend time with O'Brien, and O'Brien just is you know has got one foot out the door. Yep, uh, it, she doesn't want to spend time with him either, and it's yeah, it's just it's not it's a very um, 
I don't know. I mean, you could argue that it's a fairly realistic relationship. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are plenty of people who have relationships like that where their communication skills are just very bad. I mean, on a, on a personal level, I think, yes, I, I'd agree with that. Um, but, but I don't think that the, I don't think the show realizes that O'Brien's communication skills are bad because they never bring it up really. Right. Like Keiko yeah. never throws that back at him. Um, to make it seem like the show is aware that this is the problem, but he is very mopey about everything. Um, I think that on a, on a personal level, I kind of related to O'Brien's conundrum here, although I thought that they just didn't do a good job of explaining the positives to it. Like, I totally understand, understand him being sort of blindsided by the pregnancy and being like, oh, I thought I had more time, and now this whole thing is going to change. Oh, yeah? You, would you like to elaborate on that on yeah, a more personal would, level? Every time Amy has told me that she is pregnant, it has been like a punch to the gut, sort of. Like you are, <laughs> you're happy, but at the same time, you're like, oh, no, it finally happened. Um, yeah, like, you, like in The Simpsons, you just lose the rest of your hair. Right. <laughs> right. It's every always, time a new baby's announced, you lose a different quadrant of your hair. It's always... Um, it's always good, but the, like you, it, it becomes real in a way there uh, when it's not real when you're trying. Like the trying is always very abstract of an idea of what's going to happen, and then when it finally happens, right. you're like, "Oh no, this is actually here." It's it's still nine months away, but O'Brien didn't even get that realization. Um, so I understand his problem there. I don't really understand his the fact that Molly is older and goes to bed kind of bugs me that it seems like o'brien thinks he has no free time when he he clearly has a ton of free time he's not doing anything uh but i mean you know i thought it was an interesting concept as being someone with the kids uh, who has kids it it felt good it's just they didn't really do anything interesting with it it's not i i understood the initial urge to write the story but after that was done i was like well that was a kind of a terrible take on his storyline so is like Bashir the stand-in for uh, a Star Trek podcast, basically in this situation. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> me and you, what, me and you are going to start another podcast about whatever the fuck they're cosplaying as on their Hollow Suite adventures. I think they're like <laughs> barbarian invaders or something. Yeah, the was it? They they've got two. They've got the the Battle of Britain and the. Uh, I'm not totally sure what the the more medieval looking one is. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> they're they're attacking kings and stuff in it. Yeah, that that would pre- be pretty much it. It's my escape and. It is funny that you mentioned, I mean, I, I don't think that, I, I know you were joking about the closet homoeroticism thing, but both of their, both of their costumes, they're like couples costumes, screams like something you would see in, in some of that stock footage from like Studio 54. Yeah, yeah. Where it's just like a bunch of people dancing and then two guys dressed as World War II bomber yeah. guys. <laughs> <clears throat> I am, I am joking about their, uh, the closeted homosexual stuff, but it's a, didn't did you not feel didn't you feel this like the scene where they are in the bar having a drink after Keiko has come back and they're like lamenting their their broken relationship at that point it mm-hmm. that was written like a breakup relationship like it, it was written as though they had broken up and I don't know the, the the script didn't do a good enough job of playing it off as if it was aware of what it was doing there and like sort of making it obvious that it was kind of being like a lighthearted sort of poking fun about like which relationship would uh, O'Brien rather be in. It came across as just kind of a, just sort of an odd relationship between the two of them. Like you, I think you have to decide which way you want to go there. And the the episode didn't decide which way I wanted to go. So it came out in the middle and it wasn't very satisfying. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I don't know. I didn't really think about it that much. It's, uh, I think they're just trying to play the, uh, I mean, O'Brien's basically like, they're playing him like he's a, like he's a teenager, essentially. Yeah. And that like, you know, <laughs> they're playing him the same, they're playing it the same way as, as though he is like going off to college and can't hang out with his friends in the summer anymore. Um, and so he's got to say goodbye to his friend at the end of the summer. Um, and it's like, but I mean, you're going to like, you're going to come back and hang out next summer, right? And he's like, yeah. Yeah. But, but there, I, I suppose that's true, except I would argue that the station is a college dorm. Like there's that's nothing, true. there's nothing stopping you from doing anything that you want to do with the, the other people because everything oh, is just downstairs. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean. You're you just know, making an example. Right yeah. yeah, making an example. I'm not, he's not literally going to college, Wes. He's already a command. He's already in Starfleet. He graduated, yeah. <sighs> Didn't go to the academy though. That's true. Um, so he didn't, didn't. He missed out on a great youthful opportunity. Um, well, you never know. He may be like maybe two months goes by and he wants to hang out with Bashir, and Bashir's off at tennis camp. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The um, I don't think there's much more else to that kind of stuff. I just I really find it sort of bizarre that they write these guys this way. Um, O'Brien's interactions with Molly O'Brien are very funny to me. It's like he he acts like a man who. He acts as if Molly is not his child to her. It's this sort of awkward, yeah. He kind of does awkward, stilted. Like he had kind of has a a sneaking suspicion that she's not his kid. Kind of attitude towards her. <laughs> and the scene where you know he's like, "Hey, Molly, can I play with you?" And she said, "No, like I'm doing it." Um, I don't know why he finds that so devastating. Like it's 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 just a kid. Like it's a kid's storyline. I, I don't know. It's, it, it rang true, but, and I know it's supposed to be hammering home the point that Julian lets me play with him whenever I want, but um, it just, it didn't feel like a very loving, he hasn't seen his kid in a year basically. And this is the kind of attitude he has towards her. It's strange. Well, I mean, uh, again, it's, it's, it's equal both ways. The kid's not super excited to see him. Yeah. He's not super excited. The, their interaction is like, um, like he's her stepfather. Yes. Yeah. Or like Keiko's new boyfriend or something. Where it's new like he's trying to hang out boyfriend. with the kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's trying to hang out with the kid, but the kid doesn't really know him. She keeps calling him Miles. <laughs> uh, you know, that kind of thing. And then he's like, Well, you know, I gotta do the I gotta try to do the dad thing, but it's killing me inside and you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was a, you know, it's a storyline that's more interesting than I think it is good. It doesn't really amount to anything except for it reintroduces the fact that Keiko and Molly are back on the station, which are honestly, are they going to be around them? for a while? What's that? Are they going to be around for a while now? Do they show up more? Yeah, they're back. Um, okay. I, I forget so why moved, they were removed from Sonny the, Crockett has moved the picture of his son off the wall back onto the <laughs> desk. <laughs> I think they, they got rid of them just to have a chance to flesh out the O'Brien and Bashir relationship on the writer's mm-hmm. level. So, um, I guess they went as far as they could with that, and they're going to bring them back. Um, so let's talk about the emissary plot line here, which is the meat and potatoes aspect of it. What do you, uh, you think about this? You don't really like the Bajoran religion stuff. I thought, I thought this was maybe the best Bajoran religion storyline that the show yeah. has done so far, because to me, this is the only episode that has really brought attention to the fact that Cisco in the show as the emissary should have more responsibilities than occasionally every once in a while on an episode saying I am the emissary. And <laughs> here here you get a a look at the fact that it actually impacts his day-to-day work by mm-hmm. people always want to come and talk to him and 
I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I thought that what they did in this episode was something that they should have been doing the entire show to this point. Like his, his sort of, um, coming to terms with this role and how it impacts him and maybe getting annoyed by the fact that he has to do this. I feel like there's so much conflict here that would have made the Bajoran religion interesting. And it's shoved into this episode kind of as a one-off and it's a little bit unsatisfying. No, I would hundred percent agree with you. I think the, uh, I think the stuff with Cisco was the most interesting that emissary stuff has ever been. And the introduction of a fundamentalist emissary to take his place, I thought was super interesting. Who I has wish good intentions had, too. He's not, he's not uh, uh Kai Wen or Vedic Wen or anything like right, that. Right. He has good intentions, but everybody kind of recognizes why it won't work. Are, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and why they've moved past that. And, uh, and it's. I wish it was something that they explored a little. Maybe I don't know. Maybe there's nowhere to go with that. Um, but I feel like it would add an interesting wrinkle into the uh, uh, the state of affairs between cultures and stuff. If you had this, if you now had the Bajorans going backwards, basically, while you were trying to deal with the Cardassians and the Klingons and all this kind of shit. Yeah, I mean, while um, Starfleet is trying to move them forward into joining the Federation, they are hitting a cultural divide that's moving them backwards as a recovery. I am shocked. Well, not shocked. I guess it makes sense because you need, you know, you need, a, you need to have a plot that involves your main characters. But I think it could have been equally as interesting, if not more interesting, if Kira had decided that, nah, she's just she's not going to do that. I mean, she has that speech about, you know, faith and all that stuff with Odo, where Odo is just like taking Point the, Bill, the Bill Maher approach to the, <laughs> the uh, uh, Bajoran religion. <laughs> to faith, yeah. <clears throat> um, it seems to me, Major, your religion is full of shit, is basically yeah. what he says to her. <laughs> um. But I, I don't know. I think I think you could have had an interesting episode about Kira decided, you know, actively choosing that that's not what she wants, and she chooses to move forward and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I wish they had done more with it. And first of all, I didn't realize emissary was a position you could just give up. And second of all, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, Everybody was just fine when uh, Cisco and the other guy left together, and then Cisco comes back alone, and he's like the uh, <laughs> the prophets chose me. The prophets, <laughs> you know, you know, the prophets they took him and they sent him back to his home timeline. Yeah, and uh, everything's fine. You know, it's definitely it. no more complicated or sinister than that. The um... I'm surprised they didn't just part of the the returning. Uh, him to his own timeline or whatever didn't involve removing him from the current timeline uh, just to to kind of clean that up a little bit where it's like, well, it's, uh, what if we just erase him, any of this from happening and we just, you know, don't have to deal with that. Well, they, they have the what, scene at it, the end where they've changed the timeline yet Kira is aware that the timeline has changed and she's aware of the difference, you know, because he finished the poem when he went back in this timeline. Right. Right. Well, I was, I mean, I, I, I was surprised that they didn't just wipe him from the present so you wouldn't have to deal with those questions. So it's just like, instead of, instead of that sort of large, uh, logic leap of Cisco coming back alone and people just being like, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. The prophets just sent him back in time. No, no sweat. Uh, just being like, yeah, the prophets just wiped, wiped him away. Cisco remembers it, but everybody else doesn't. That kind right. of thing. There's never in been which a, case, there's never been a doubt that Cisco is the emissary. Right. In which case, I was thinking, man, 
he has a lot of alternate timelines that he knows stuff about in his head at this point. Yeah, yeah, that's true. He's he is the uh, the keystone of a lot of timeline history in Star Trek. I think Francisco is the um, next time they do like a cross. So if they ever do um, the big uh, multi captain crossover movie um, where it's like you know old man Picard and older Janeway and older Cisco and it involves some sort of time travel, I really hope they're talking about it. And then Cisco's just like, oh yeah, no, I know that timeline. Yeah, right. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that once. Um, the, this is one of those storylines that I wish they had tied in more. And I think that it's one of those things that it actually doesn't work all that well as a single episodes idea. It's one of those, it's a plot that probably should have spanned a season. You know, if this was a modern TV show, this would have been this guy coming to power and making these changes would have been something that was drawn out a little bit more. And I think when it when it does it on an episode basis, it it's one of those things that I could buy this happening to the Bajoran religion if you stretched it out and you flesh it out a little bit. But what it does when it's in one episode is it makes the Bajoran religions look extremely fickle and stupid. Like they they are they have no grounding to their beliefs. Like anything that happens, it seems like the whole planet is like, well, we all fucking changed our minds. Like we're just gonna do this now. Right. And I, because it's because of the fact that the Bajoran religion is so vague that they're allowed to do this, but it comes across as very like, does the Federation really want these people? They seem so blown in whatever direction the winds are going that I don't know how stable of a society they are. And also that guy fucking killed the guy. Yeah. Like, and I mean, that's the change I'm talking about. He is, he's a normal guy in one scene. And then this guy appears and he's like, Hey, we should go back to the Jigata or whatever those things are called. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to kill this guy because I don't like his Jigata or whatever that thing is. And you know, he doesn't come across as a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very rational. Like, uh, you know, that guy clearly remembers what it was like the last time they did it. And he's like, yeah, I know how to do this. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, like, that's the interesting, that was the interesting part of the episode to me where it's like, you've got, you know, you, you've, if they had expanded on that and it was, yeah. So you've got this guy who killed this other guy because the other guy didn't want to go back to the way things were. And, uh, you know, he, his family cast was that he was like an undertaker or something. So he was deemed unclean. And then the other dude was like, yeah, that's why I killed him. Cause he didn't go back to that and blah, blah, blah. And then you've got. You've got a murder on your hands, and then you've got Kira in the middle of that trying to rationalize, like, shit. I mean, on the one hand, I do want to be a part of my civilization and my culture and they and follow this line of faith that I've believed my whole life. But on the other hand, having lived my life as someone more independent and someone who is working as in a high-level position with Starfleet and the Federation and seeing how you know, <clears throat> how things can work otherwise. This dude just killed a guy. Yeah. You know, where do I fall in this? I mean, that I find, I find that a lot more interesting than, you know, let's fly into the wormhole and spend $800,000 on a shitty wormhole shot and then uh, put some Vaseline on the lens so that, so <laughs> Bashir and Kira and Odo can speak in one, one word sentences and then just be like, eh, just how about we just take this guy out of the timeline? It's fine. I still really like the prophet sequences. Um, I still think they're. I still think that they work in concept and execution. Um, but I'm, I'm going to avoid that point. I don't really want to talk about that. But the the cure thing is interesting. 
It's another point where I feel like they have missed an opportunity to give Kira an episode that involves her in some way. Mm-hmm. She is again tangential to whatever the main plot is here. And and similar to the Bajoran criticism I had before, she seems very willing to be blown by the wind in whatever direction that uh, society deems that she goes, which is odd for such a strong-willed freedom fighter character. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, she should not... I mean, her... her, her Opinions and viewpoints should be more informed by the life that she's led when it comes to this stuff. Yes, exactly. Um, I still really, I think the episode, although I like the idea of that Kira episode, I feel I feel this is too important and too vital of a chance to show Cisco's emissary role. And I think they do that well here. By the end of it, do you think Cisco has changed his perception of what his role is here? Is this episode saying anything about Cisco accepting his role, or is this him purely trying to look out for Bajor's best interests? Or are they I the same thing? A, yeah, I think it's a little of both. I mean, because, you know, he seems a lot more um, willing to to be a part of that whole thing at the end than he did at the beginning. Um Although not that much, because I mean, even at the beginning, he's kind of like, "Yeah, no, that's that's cool. I got no problem doing that blessing for you. No, no sweat." But well, you know what the problem um, is the the Bajorans who come to meet him act as if they are people who are meeting their favorite author. It's like yeah. it's not like they're running into the Pope or anything. They're just like, "Hey, emissary, like you want to you want to sign my book for me?" He's like, "All right," and they like, "Hey, good, thanks, good to see you. We'll see you later." Mm-hmm. It's not a very pious like kneeling and sort of like they can't believe that they are in the presence of the prophet basically. Um, and I think that's kind of a problem. So when Cisco, if it was more of that, you would understand Cisco having a problem with it because he is, if they were more devout towards him, you can see his conflict of like, I don't really believe this. I feel bad that I'm leading these people on in this way. And all they ask him to do is basically read a prayer. Like he's a justice of a peace at a friend's wedding. And he's like, all right, I'll see you guys later. And that that's it for his responsibility. I feel they missed the, they missed the point there of the conflict. And they also, you know, if you wanted to span this into a storyline, I think the fact that Starfleet is anti him doing this is a very interesting storyline that they could have gone with. Yeah. I, I, I actually forgot about that till you mentioned it, but yeah, when he's like, when he's talking to care about how, he just got chewed out by Starfleet because he basically failed in their eyes because his what he was supposed to do there is is you know bridge between the two people and him resigning the emissary position means that that's not going to happen. I thought that was that was really interesting too. I, I wish that's another thing I wish they had expanded on. Yeah, yeah. Um, the I think it just doesn't. All the ideas are there, and I wish they had been fleshed out more. I will say that I think the ending actually does a little bit of damage to it, too. I I like the prophet scenes, generally. Um, I like the fact that they continue to use the prophet's um, sense of time as a way to tie them into things. Like, when the the humans and the Bajorans have the problem of, like, why did you send me 200 years into the future? The prophets are who are aliens and have no concept of time are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> sort of like, <laughs> like it's it's just kind of a weird accident that this happened, and they wanted him to meet Cisco, but they don't have any regard for the Bajoran life. And I, I'm always interested by that about the prophets is that these the prophets are the uh, the gods of the Bajorans, but the prophets are very dismissive and not interested in how the Bajorans and the humans live in their world because they aren't really their gods; they're just kind of aliens that are out there. But um. Yeah. I was wondering, um, so 
do they basically say, <clears throat> excuse me, um, when he's like, why did you send, why didn't you send me, why did you keep me for 200 years? Do they basically say, so because you weren't worthy or something? Or I couldn't quite parse out. The problem with speaking in one word sentences is sometimes it's difficult to determine what verb. they're trying to say. <laughs> um, they they sent him back. My understanding is that they kept him or they sent him into the future because they needed him to draw Cisco into the wormhole, which is not necessary except to resolve the plot that you've created by sending this guy 200 years into the future. Does that make right. sense? So if they they say to him that we needed you to bring us the Cisco, except Cisco was already the emissary in this timeline and sending that guy out to get him is only fixing the problem that sending him out in the first place has created. So the prophets didn't so, really do anything. So is this basically the the prophet's equivalent of like sending in the, you know, starting the guy who's usually on the bench for a game just to like wake you up? Maybe. Send you a message? Yeah, maybe. <clears throat> that, that's or like when they're, when you're trying to, ask for more money for like a, a part and they're like, well, we're going to get Colin Farrell. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's that's maybe the way it is. And if that's the case, Cisco's awakening at the end is much stronger than the show is implying or that it maybe should be implying. Um, because I like to think that what has happened here is sort of reaffirmed Cisco's belief in what's going on. And even though he sort of says that he's a doubter of the Bajoran faith early on in the episode, saying that he's a skeptic, but he's, even though he's been reading all the uh, the tomes and the religious writings about this, he doesn't actually believe in any of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think the ending is sort of implying that he's maybe not buying into it, but it's it's hitting him on some personal level. He's he's buying into the the role. Um, at least on a you know quote unquote spiritual level as opposed to an intellectual level. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the 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 problem with the ending in the prophets is that it is so vague and meaningless that it's a stupid ending to me because they they give Cisco just this vague we are we are of Bajor and then they send him off on his way and there's no there's no reason for the prophets to have been doing this. And it's not like you even going through this whole churn of stuff that you learned anything about the prophets, you learned anything about their motives, you learned anything about the situation. It was all done very arbitrarily by the prophets just to get this plot into motion. And then it doesn't even resolve very well. Yeah. Yeah. I can't argue with that. Yeah. Uh, Let's see here. Do, 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 do. I think that's pretty much it. Did you have anything else you wanted to talk about with this one? Yes, there is something we didn't mention, which actually was my favorite part of the... Well, two things. First, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it, you reminded me of it as when you were talking about that opening scene when the, the couple comes in. Um, Cisco's in there with Dax, and Cisco says something about like having a certain amount of power and not really knowing if he wants it, and then Dax is like, I'd want that. Yeah. <laughs> like the, Dax has this like weird low-key uh, you know, power thirst. I can't. I wish I could remember the actual line, but I didn't write it down, so I might be completely wrong. Maybe I was just reading that incorrectly. But. <laughs> Second, my favorite part of the episode is when uh, Bashir tells Worf that O'Brien's having another kid. Yeah, and uh, he's like, "Yeah, Worf delivered, you know, Molly and blah blah blah." And he's like, "When are you having your child?" <laughs> <laughs> Seven months. He's like, "Hmm, I will not be here. Yep, I will be uh, very far away." That's and, good comedy uh, from those guys. Yeah, it was it was good. It, it was they they played it pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> just him standing in the background, sort of uh, shell shocked by the news of what? No, that, yeah, that's what it was. He goes, 
O'Brien, O'Brien's ha- the O'Briens are having another baby. And he goes, now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice that they can link those things. Yep, that's a, that was a good... That was a good comedy turn by Michael Dorn. It is uh, his. He played that very, very well. I think the whole thing was played very well between all of them. Um, just it's a DS Nine thing. It's just that the level of comfort between the characters feels a little bit different than it did on the other series. And right there is a good example. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that's it. Did you have anything else? Um, I don't think so. No, that's pretty much it. We talked about O'Brien as a dad. We talked about the emissary role and the emissary storyline. It's the annual Bajoran emissary episode um kind of a staple of the show at this point now but we're going to take a break i'm going to play a audio clip me and clay are going to come back we're going to break down uh or give our final thoughts about a session jillian have you been uh not bad you oh you know all right i was heading home thought i'd stop in for a quick pint it's been a while eh Seems like weeks. I see you found someone to play darts with. Oh, uh, I've set a board up in our quarters so Molly and I can play. Well, the Mullins, um, he's pretty good. So is Molly. <laughs> it's, it's not, not the, the same. same. <laughs> All right, so we'll do patron thoughts first. If you guys support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file, you get to leave your thoughts about upcoming episodes. We read them on the podcast. A session, Holly McLaughlin. I think this is a really good episode, but I only rewatch it maybe once every couple of years because it's so painful to see the Bajoran slip so easily into caste-based discrimination. I cheer when Cisco flatly asserts that such a thing will keep them out of the Federation. And again, when Cisco reaffirms his destiny as the emissary and retakes his position. Zam Nuclear Vessel says, A session... Uh, the episode kind of glosses over what I consider to be the coolest part, that the prophets plucked Acarum out of time in order to get Cisco on track as the emissary. So that is our, the reading that people have here, Clay. Um, okay. Also has a nice semi-hidden message that your historical hero probably has a lot of opinions you wouldn't like. And is it possible Ducat was right in a very self-serving way when he said that the occupation had been good for Bejor? It's thought, thought-provoking, actually. <laughs> so this, is like, this is like the equivalent of if, like, you know, you really liked Ender's Game, and then Orson Scott Card just showed up, and you're like, mm, "Yeah, I like his book, but I think he's got some problematic opinions on you know a lot of other things." <laughs> like his work, don't like his politics. Stephen Cobb says the session fun to see Quark reminisce about Nog as a baby. That was one other joke. He the uh, the C Brock acquire acquire Brock acquire is a yes, terrific yeah. joke. That's very good. Um, <laughs> Fun to see Quark reminisce about Nog as a baby. Everything goes straight into their ears. Acquire, Brock, acquire. Good reminder of alien points of view. I like. I did like that one. Um, let's see here. Chad Wiley says, The session, I always liked this episode. As a fantasy fan more than a sci-fi fan, I like the prophets showing a personal interest in Cisco. It makes them more like gods and less like random aliens, which opens up more interesting story possibilities. The idea of settling an argument about who is the chosen one really... Who the Chosen One really is by asking the gods directly is a pretty cool idea. Also, Worf's now might get my vote as the funniest line in all of Star Trek. Mm. Matthew Ross, a session. The religiosity and mild, mildly mindless following of the newest prophet of the week for the Bajorans reminds me of the life of Brian. Regardless, Cisco's realization that the appearance of the author is a test of his emissariness was a nice touch. The new sets of rules for Bajoran religion and the enlightenment of the Federation makes you wonder what is this episode trying to sell religion is bad demagogues are bad kai win well we know she's bad there is no fate except what the prophets give you the fact that the timeline is a bit messed up and no one notices was very funny if not ridiculous 
Neil Brennan, a session. Only quibble with Kira's I'm quitting scene. Oh, well, I'll talk about this in a second. After spending four seasons with her, I just don't buy it. So either there's a scene missing that gives better grounding to the motivation or the Bajoran religion just isn't convincing at all. I wrote um, the scene where Kira says she's going to quit and Cisco's like, if you can, I can, I can find someone to fit your role, but I'll never replace you is like his voice wavers. Um, mm-hmm. Worst scene of the season so far. That was a terrible scene. It was. It was so. Were you, expe- were you expecting like? I'd expect that over the top. I thought that was awful. That was so melodramatic and yeah bad that it, I agree with Neil that it kind of comes out of nowhere. I think they hint at it, but it uh, Kira's motivation to quit just feels like it comes on all of a sudden. And outside of that, I just thought it was really cheesy. Just a really cheesy scene. Yeah, you. I would expect Cisco to be like resignation not accepted right get back to your post major you've you've got a job to do especially as how we've seen a bunch of episodes where him chewing out subordinates for not doing their job recently yeah show me you can have a mild base understanding of how sculpture works and maybe we'll talk about it (laughs) she certainly lucked out by not being in the cast of like stone breakers and stuff like she she ended up in a pretty a pretty good one so yeah i know she's like uh, that's a pretty uh, uh, posh cast to be in, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not like the other guy who got thrown See? off of the walkway. And honestly, that could have been interesting too. I mean, if this had been a longer thing, if Kira has to go back home and deal with the, you know, posh um, way that her, you know, family or cast is living versus what she's used to, that could be kind of interesting too. Yeah, yeah. A session. Paul Evans, the way that the Bajorans are portrayed is very strange. There's a lot of groupthink, which would put the Bajoran religion down as more of a cult. We see this many times where as soon as there is any change in the political or religious sphere, the entire population follows the new party line. This feels more than choosing a new pope. The chosen one of the prophets has been replaced and massive cultural reforms have been implemented. There was no schism caused by this. No one kept following the ideas of Cisco after the change. No one kept the idea of sticking to the Dajara after the return of Cisco. The timeline here is deliberately left strange, so there could be room for this. There isn't. This is another one of the Bajoran episodes that could have been good if it were not for the total obedience of the entire population when things change. Agreed. Um, it, it The Bajoran changes just happen so rapidly. Will Yates, uh, a session. This is a really interesting premise. Cisco coming to terms with his fate despite his desire to let it go. I don't know what was going on with Dax in the office scene where her and Cisco are discussing the ancient prophecies. Terry Farrell's performance was akin to a clown car cashing into an orphanage. You hope for the best, but then you get what's sad. It's interesting to see the heavy-handed tactics of Bajoran who hadn't been through the occupation would use in the name of religious conviction. I also think that it was strange that the way that the faux emissary and the devout priest were all smiles when describing the eventual fascism they planned to introduce. The slow-moving close-ups were used a bit too much for my liking, but I suppose it did show the individual feelings in a global situation that must have many different responses. Yeah, those, uh, I noticed that too. They did a lot of weird push-ins and stuff that were Unusual. They, they were. They were. Steven Spielberg did not direct this. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I do think it rang true that after a year, O'Brien was pissed that he wasn't getting any more ass upon the return of his wife. <laughs> Lastly, I love the comedy that they can pull from Worf when he hears that Keiko is having a baby. Using Worf as comedy relief is a great way to have the jokes without becoming too obvious. Um, 
Kyle Barrett, last comment. A session. It's hard to buy into any of the character drama because Cisco being the emissary rarely comes up. It's as if he's been struggling with it for years. We haven't known about it. If he's been struggling with it for years, we haven't known about it. Everything in the episode is fine, but nothing holds any weight. And, quote, the prophets work in mysterious ways, end quote, is a bit too cheeky an explanation to get away with the time paradoxes the ending causes. It's like you said last podcast, if this uh, if this is the quality of the worst episodes when the season's doing something right, oh, it's like you said last podcast, if this is the quality of the worst episodes, then the season's doing something right. And we do get Worf's funniest moment yet. That's it. Thank you, patrons, for supporting the show. Thank you for leaving your comments. You had, people had a lot of thoughts about a session for one reason or another, uh, which is funny because I find it a pretty middling episode. But as Kyle says, if this is one of the worst, then I think the season's in pretty good shape. Clay, on a scale of one to five, what are you going to give this episode? Um, low three. Low three. Cause I, yeah, because I feel like it's not as good as the last one, and the last one was a pretty strong three. Oh, interesting. Um, the last one being the Frankie episode. Yes. Uh, Bar Association. I'd say this is a – maybe it's just my bias against the Ferengi episodes. I like this one a little bit better than Bar Association. Yeah. I'd agree it's a three, but I would flip them and just say this is a better three than the other one. Um I'm, I'm surprised because I would have thought that – I, I like the ideas here, and you're usually the ideas man. Um yeah, you know, I, I did like the ideas, but I just, I don't know. I wish they had done more with them. And yeah. I, I thought the ending was was kind of bogus. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll give it a three. I think it's, um, it had a lot, it had a lot of stuff going on. I think all, the patrons are actually on the same page as me about all the problems with it. So maybe it's not all that unique of an opinion that I have, but it's a, uh, it's an episode that I would have liked to have seen fleshed out earlier. And these ideas that they're coming up with uh, seem a little bit too little too late to really save yeah. the idea. yeah. Uh, that's it for a session. Thank you very much, guys. We're both going to give that one a three, uh, but it's been a pretty strong year so far, and Rules of Engagement will be the next episode that comes along. So if you enjoyed the show, you can go to all the social media links. They'll be in the video description and the podcast blurb. You can go to Facebook, Twitter, Discord for discussion. Patreon.com slash the Penske file if you want to support the show there. A couple dollars a month to get extra stuff. We've got Night of the Living Dead. Coming up is our Halloween podcast. That'll be out Tuesday, the day before Halloween. Um, and we did the live stream. I did that. We'll be doing that next month. You can check out the new perks. There's a whole bunch of podcasts over there. Support the show on patreon.com slash the Penske file. I think that's it. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? Uh, no. Posers out in stores. Poser number three comes out on Halloween, if you want to try and find that somewhere. And uh, listen to the Bat-Ass podcast for Batman the Animated Series talk. I think we're going to be doing, uh, I think Sean and I are going to be recording Mask of the Phantasm sometime in November. Um, so if anybody has any questions or comments, shoot them to us and we'll try to read them off while we do it. Yep. Catch up with... Uh Mask of the Phantasm, which is a movie I haven't seen in a very, 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 very long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it because uh, I've got those uh, the the blue the Blu-ray remasters of the series coming, so I'm really yep. looking forward to digging into that. Is Phantasm a part of that? Yeah, it's the entire series: Mask of the Phantasm and Batman Sub Zero. Oh, interesting. I didn't. I wasn't aware of that. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out to the Captain Tier patrons. They always get a shout out. Stephen Cobb, Jay Stanley, David Kay, Nick Sergi, Nathan Elliott, Michael Pond, Matthew Cutler, Will Yates, Matt Flores, Samuel Custer, Santos Gonzalez, Robert Cummins, Andrew Cherlog, Spinobi, Russ Graham, Eric Johnson, Deckers, Bastiani, Neil Brennan, Bradley Killens, Mike Burnett, Matthew Ross, Ben Douglas, Kyle Barrett, Joint Mango, Tark Latif. Thank you very much, guys. Oh, um, 
I guess we'll just end this with a quick little thing about Clay. What do you think of the uh, the announcement that there's going to be an animated comedy Star Trek series? Um, sure, whatever. Yeah, uh, it's it's by one of the Rick and Morty guys, right? It is not yeah. like the main guys, but one of the writers. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you know, sure. I'm I I'm more interested to see what they do with that, honestly, than probably Discovery season two. But I'm trying to be positive. There is a um. There is a mild concern. People brought it up in the Discord and on Twitter. I think there is a mild concern about how this fits into canon in some ways. Um, <laughs> Listen, guys. Uh, <laughs> if uh, if you're not already mildly concerned about what they're doing with canon based on Discovery, I don't think this one's going to help you any. any you know, So I, I feel like uh, hard, hard canon is not doesn't really exist anymore, unfortunately. No, not in this. I think that the, but I, I think that, and um, Tarek brought it up on Twitter to me, and I think it's a good point. The, something I'd never really thought about before, Star Trek from 65, right, with TOS all the way through, I would say Enterprise, mm-hmm. um, had a very consistent universe to it, which is really kind of um, probably strength of the series in some ways. Like, mm-hmm. It, it was a very consistent, even when they were sort of breaking their inconsistent things, it was a universe that you felt like every show took place in the same spot. And writing a comedy that fits into that, and I, I'd agree with you, maybe that's dead already and there is no way to sort of bring that back, but it'll be, the comedy will be very interesting how they choose to do it. Like, will it be a straight up satire parody of Star Trek or are they going to use the Star Trek tone and actually make it funny, which is possible, I think, but it'll be difficult. And is it specifically lower decks? So is, is it going to be on the Enterprise? No, the, the concept, is that Enterprise? It, con- concept is that it's the least important ship in the Federation. Oh, well, that's kind of fun. Yeah. So, I mean, so Voyager then. <laughs> it's a long way away. Can't interact with anybody. Yeah. I mean, that's how you do it, right? You can have a cannon show like that by having the stakes be so low that it doesn't really matter to anybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'd be fine with that. But it'll be interesting. It's something uh, coming down the line. We'll see. Anyway. I think you. they should get Kelsey Grammer back and do an Enterprise C show. Yeah. Or what, what the hell did they? No, I'm sorry. He wasn't on the Enterprise no, C. No, I forget what the name of that ship was. It's the one that they crashed and caused an effect. But um, the woman is the captain of Enterprise C. I forget what her name That's is. That's right. Yeah. Well, whatever ship he was on, do that show. <laughs> How dare you disrespect the canon of a series like that, Clay? Um, I think that's it. Guys, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. We will be back with uh, Rules of Engagement, which is Worf accidentally destroying a transport ship full of Klingon civilians, and he has to get yelled at for a while. So we'll be back with that episode. Clay, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. And check out the Patreon, guys, if you want uh, the episode for Night of the Living Dead. will be up Tuesday, so uh, which is tomorrow on the day that this releases. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>